Would you turn in your Bibles to the book of James, chapter 3? We'll be reading verses 13 through 18. James, chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. We're looking at this text one more time to close our series about the wisdom from above. James 3, 13 through 18, which says this. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, make your name holy in this time, in this place, here and now. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. Oh, Jesus, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. The wisdom from above is open to reason, impartial, and sincere. That's what we'll be talking about this morning. And I want to tell you a story. A true story that shows us what can happen uh, when we lack this kind of wisdom. When we're closed off to reason and correction. When, we're, when we show partiality and favoritism. When we lack sincerity by being hypocritical and clinging to false pretense. In the 1920s, airships were a mark of the future and of progress They were these big silvery vessels, literally rising above other forms of travel. They were sleek and serene and and safe. And that silvery exterior, though it it was not metal, as it seemed from a distance, but it was fabric covering a frame of uh, real... which covered the real things that made the thing float, which were these uh, gas bags that were glued together from over one million cow intestines. It was the only material at that time that was strong and light enough to hold that hydrogen gas. These bags, though they would, they would smell and they would attract rats and they would grow mold, beneath that futuristic silvery facade was a mass of festering, flammable, inflated entrails. But most people only saw the outside, and the outside was impressive. So, in the late 20s, uh, a government official in England called Lord Thompson, who was Secretary of State for Air, he commissioned the building of the largest airships ever made to that point. Imagine a large skyscraper on its side. That's what it would have looked like. 
And he decided to make it a competition between the government and a private company uh, that he commissioned out. And uh, each would build a ship by a certain deadline and then fly them a great distance and the better ship would win. And this competition became highly politicized between the government and private industry. And uh, Lord Thompson's own government department was going to both build one of the ships and be the judge of which one was best. So, so there was some built-in bias there. And Lord Thompson's dreams for this government ship was that it would be a flying oasis, taking the British political class to the furthest reaches of the British Empire. And it had, this, this ship had two decks of passenger accommodation, a spacious lounge, promenades by large windows to enjoy the view, a dining room that would seat 60 people as they enjoyed lavish banquets. And... All of this was cradled under 5 million cubic feet of highly flammable hydrogen. And all of this luxury and, and flourishes, it made the ship very overweight. Uh, and in an attempt to fix this problem, the team, uh, they didn't feel like they could lose any of those luxuries. They had to keep that. So they, they ended up sawing the ship in half and added more gas bags and patched it back together. And uh, they filled those gas bags as full as they could. And they started, after that, uh, seeing serious problems with this government ship. And it, it turns out that they had overinflated these delicate bags, and which they rubbed in wrong ways and uh, against the frame and stuff, and it made small holes in a lot of them. But there was so much pressure from Lord Thompson and from this highly politicized competition, plus they had put on this front of futuristic functionality for so long that the embarrassment of admitting the danger and the dysfunction was too much for them to bear. So they had trouble admitting it to themselves, let alone to the public. So they tried desperately to keep this facade of perfection. And they got rid of as much weight as they could, including the parachutes. And later, an, an inspector, he failed the ship in his, when he had inspected it. But the government had placed so much excitement and hope on this ship that they just covered their ears. And since the government was the one that issued the permits, uh, and it was a government ship, they issued the permits to fly. The crew finally asked politely to postpone the deadline, but Lord Thompson denied the request because he was so utterly confident in his ship. And when it came time for the flight, it was storming. And still, Lord Thompson was enthusiastically insisting on flying. And the crew wasn't even allowed suitcases because they were too heavy. They had to bring their stuff in paper sacks. And the captain told his son final words of wisdom in case he didn't return. And just hours into the flight, the airship did crash in a forest, but it crashed only at the leisurely pace of 15 miles an hour. And, but, of course, a single spark in that crash ignited that 5 million cubic feet of highly flammable hydrogen, and the serene hope of the future was destroyed. This story is a perfect picture of how pretense leads to being closed off to reason. James says that the wisdom from above is sincere, meaning without pretense, without hypocrisy. He also says that the wisdom from above is open to reason. Lord Thompson and that airship team were neither of those things. They had ample opportunity to change course. Early on, they could have lost some of those luxuries so the ship wouldn't have been so overweight. Later, they could have rebuilt the ship and ate the cost rather than just doing poorly executed patch jobs. Or even later, they could have delayed or called off the competition completely when the ship didn't pass its inspection. 
but they were not open to reason. One reason for that was because they had this pretense of this facade that they were trying to keep up. They had promised safety and luxury, and they had burdened themselves with the hope of the future. They had made themselves out to be more than they really were. Fooling the world, and even at times fooling themselves. And their pretense and hypocrisy, it had to be protected. And it closed them off to reason. They couldn't be real. They couldn't be corrected. They were not wise. They were fools. And it led to their destruction. One reason also was Lord Thompson's partiality. I mean, he pretended that this competition was fair. But, he, but if, if it were, he should have been judging the ships based on their performance alone. That would have been impartial. But though he claimed to be an impartial judge... He was clearly partial to the ship that was made by his own department. And that partiality led to a whole mess of self-deceit and pressure and unfair treatment on both sides. The wisdom from above is open to reason, impartial, and sincere. So let's look at those in order. We'll start with being open to reason because it's essential to grow in those other two areas because partiality and hypocrisy are two of the sneakiest sins. So sneaky that we even fool ourselves about them sometimes. So to be truly wise, we need to be open to, re to reason and to rebuke. The wisdom from above makes us open to being corrected and persuaded. It may be one of the most quintessential chapters on wisdom in Scripture, Proverbs chapter 9, we see both lady wisdom and lady folly calling out to us. And in this chapter, we're taught that, that famous verse, that incredible couplet, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is insight. But directly preceding that famous verse, are three verses emphasizing that true wisdom is marked by a willingness to be reproved and corrected and taught. One of those verses I find so uh, profound, it says this, Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Now that is a rare quality to say the least. It requires the humility and the meekness of wisdom that we talked about at the beginning of this series. But G.K. Chesterton once observed how such humility can be misplaced. He said this, What we suffer from today is humility in the wrong place. A man was meant to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly reversed. Nowadays, the part of a man that a man does, does assert is exactly the part that he ought not to assert, himself. And the part he doubts is exactly the part he ought not to doubt, the divine reason. A man was meant to be, I, like, I love that, a man was meant to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. Many are misplacing their meekness, often in an ironic attempt to gain the approval of certain people. But our teachableness and our openness to reason must not come from a, a wavering, wishy-washy doubt that we can never really know what's best or know what's true. Instead, it ought to come from a rock-solid conviction in the truth of the gospel, which teaches us that though we can be more confident in God, we ought to be less confident in our own abilities. It's because 
we stand firmly in Christ's righteousness, that we can be free and safe to doubt our own righteousness. We must care so much about God and his will that we care less about our reputation. That we care more about our character and being conformed to Christ than we do about protecting our pride. We must love the light so much that we walk in it and towards it even when it exposes things in us that we'd rather keep in the dark. As we long to be made pure, we will be poised and ready to repent. Chuck Swindoll once shared a really great great quote from a philosopher that said, The final proof of greatness lies in being able to endure criticism without resentment. And I think that is a sign of greatness. Definitely a sign of wisdom. But wisdom is not just enduring criticism, because enduring could, could mean being unbothered by it and unmoved by it. But the wisdom from above is actually being open to it. The temptation of our flesh is to throw out the, the baby of fair criticism with the bathwater of unfair criticism. If we recognize the truth about sin, though, and the, and the means of grace that God has put into place to keep us, we will be receptive to criticism and correction and critique. Our hearts are hard deceptive and frail and capable of justifying even the worst thoughts and actions and words. Because, because we are not yet what we are meant to be, we need people in our lives to remind us that we have not yet arrived. We need to hear the voices that are helping us to see sin in ourselves that we cannot see. It is this note that James ends his whole book on. At the end of James, he closes this letter with this powerful statement. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. He encourages us to be pursuing people that have gone astray. He says the wayward need correction in order to have their souls saved from death. That is the system God has put in place for us. So if we, in humility, take a moment and put ourselves in the shoes of the potentially wayward person, rather than where I know you want to put yourself initially, which is in the shoes of the corrector, the one getting them back, which is okay because that's what he says, right? But also, just for a second, put yourself in the position of the potentially wayward person. And know that God's means of grace to keep you and save you is the correction and rebuke from those around you. Then wisdom would mean that we must be open to that for the health and flourishing of our souls. So that we don't shut our ears like Lord Thompson did and the airship design team and and then fly off into disaster. But remember... Another thing that led to them closing themselves off to reason and correction was Lord Thompson's uh, favoritism and partiality towards his own department ship. But the wisdom from above, James says, is impartial. Partiality is when you base your treatment of someone or your attitude towards someone on something that should not be the basis of how you treat them or think about them. Uh, It doesn't mean you take nothing into account in how you treat people. It means you take the right things into account and the right things only. Here's one example of what I mean. 
In the 1980s, top orchestras started putting up screens in audition rooms so that the committee of judges could no longer see the person auditioning. And immediately after they did that, the percentage of women hired went way up. It seems that in ways that no one quite realized, the act of seeing a given musician play and, and how the judges felt about their gender was coloring their decisions about who, who played the music better. Those screens that they put up were a display of being open to reason, a mark of wisdom. There were, of course, some who fought uh, these findings and continued to insist that men were better musicians because of their strength, and court battles ensued. And those people, they were not open to reason. They were not wise. But, but those who accepted that the screens had changed things, accepted that seeing people must have skewed their perspective because now they were choosing more women, those people were open to reason. If we're going to be wise with the wisdom that makes us impartial, we are also going to need the wisdom that makes us open to reason. Impartiality, it doesn't mean you treat everyone the same, but it does mean you don't take irrelevant considerations into consideration. And in this instance, gender was not a relevant consideration. Gender isn't the only thing used in, part, in the sin of partiality, of course, right? Uh, I, I listened to an interview with Malcolm Gladwell. Well, uh, he's an author, and he once was, said he was giving a lecture to a large uh, group of students at an elite university. And he looked around the room, and he realized that every single person was good-looking. And he thought, this is what happens when we fool ourselves into thinking that we're choosing the best students, period, when we're actually choosing the best students who are also the best-looking. So we judge on attractiveness and appearance. Race, ethnicity are also huge factors in how we judge people and become impartial. Or economic status. Or whether people match some more nebulous ideal of what we think is cool. These are all considerations that we use to judge people in situations where it's not relevant. And, and we are called to take pains to hold ourselves accountable, hold one another accountable, to not practice the sin of partiality in how we think and talk about people or in how we treat them. James addresses partiality with a very clear example of it in chapter 2. And this is kind of a long passage, uh, but it's so important, so stay with me and listen close. He says, My brothers... Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. And then he goes on to say a little bit later, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Okay, so what's going on here in this passage? He's addressing one instance of partiality based on poverty and wealth. And 
He's saying if you give preferential treatment to someone just because they are rich, or, or just because they look rich, actually, from what he says, he says you are making unjust distinctions, becoming a judge with evil thoughts, have dishonored those people, committed sin, and are convicted as a transgressor of the law. That's all things that he says. That's strong language. He's saying that the level of wealth or poverty is irrelevant to how you welcome a person into your fellowship and how you treat them. Some could make the argument, though, that it is relevant. I could see people saying they could help us pay for ministry. But that's pragmatic thinking. He says you're not supposed to view people through a lens of what they can do for you. He tells us how we are supposed to view people. He says this, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? God's, so you see what he's talking about God's impartial and undeserved grace that makes the kind of people who are looked down on into the kind of people who are heirs of the kingdom. That ought to shape our perspective. Then James says the opposite of showing partiality is fulfilling what he calls the royal law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Which is a beautiful and a bit different way of combating partiality, I think. Because how do you love yourself? You're quite partial to yourself, aren't you? Here's one example of what I mean. I'm always the one who plates the food in our, in our home. And when I'm plating it, even though I try my best to make both plates look the same, uh, often one plate will look a little bit better than the other ones to me. And when I'm walking in step with the spirit of love, I want to give that plate to Audrey. But many times, I want to give myself the better plate. And in those moments, I know exactly what it would look like to love Audrey as I would love myself, to give her the better plate. And so I've committed to God in my heart to do that. And I'd say about 90% of the time, I stick to it. And the other 10% of the time, my selfishness wins. Sorry to Audrey, who is just now finding out that I give her the worst plate 10% of the time. (laughs) But I'm telling you that because it's just one example of how we love ourselves. We show partiality to ourselves. And that's how James tells us to love others. What's so beautiful about that is that he's saying, rather than reduce everyone to the lowest common denominator, he's saying raise everyone to the highest so that you're treating everyone with partiality in a sense and that you're treating everyone as though they are important. Really important. Both the people that you naturally think of as important and the people you don't naturally think of as important. To be truly wise, is to we must be impartial. And James tells us that That's as high and hard of a calling as fulfilling the royal law, to love others as you love yourself, which is why we must be open to reason again, because I have met enough humans to know, and so have you, that people often think of themselves as impartial even when they're not. And if that can happen to others, it can happen to me. We should ask ourselves, what if we have biases deeper than we think? What if they pervade our culture in more ways than we think? Because true wisdom is to recognize that sin is deeper within us and broader throughout our world than we ever thought and than we presently know. If sin can be that deep and that wide, then we should also recognize that this particular sin of partiality can be that deep and that wide. 
So we must be ready to be corrected, ready to work, to reform. This is just a natural outworking of our Christian convictions about the nature of the fallen world. There's two really important points about the Christian doctrine of sin. Those are its depth and its breadth. That each person has been corrupted by sin on a deeper level than they ever imagined. And that sin has pervaded our society and, our, and corrupting our culture and distorting every, the world in more ways than we know, especially things humans have to do with. So when we hear these exact same things being said today about racism, that it's deeper within us than we sometimes know, and that it's corrupted our nation in broader ways than we realize, we should not dismiss that. We should say that makes a lot of sense because that's what we've always said about sin. I know some people mix in wrong and distorted messages with that too at times, but the devil always, just like with criticism, wants us to throw the baby of truth out with the bathwater of distorted perspectives and bad application. But we need to have the humility and courage to have nuanced perspectives, which only comes from the wisdom from above that makes us open to reason. We should contemplate the deceptive depth of sin that blinds and binds people. And know that until Jesus comes, we have to battle that sin. So let us be open to reason. Let us push back against partiality of all kinds because this is the beautiful character of the heart of our God. I love how Paul puts it in Ephesians 6-9. He tells masters to do the same towards their servants as he just told servants to do toward their masters. And he specifically says, stop your threatening. And then he gives the reason why he says this. He says, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. He says, you rich and powerful master are the same before your heavenly father as your servant is. You and whoever you are tempted to look down on have the very same master. And his love levels the field. As Paul said elsewhere, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Jesus, in uniting us to himself, he unites us to one another. And this, the wisdom from above understands and lives out that unity by not showing partiality. But partiality is often colored by pretense because, like I said, we can claim to be impartial even while practicing partiality, which is hypocrisy and insincerity. But the wisdom from above, James tells us, is sincere. And this is the last aspect of wisdom that we'll cover, sincerity. Being without hypocrisy, being genuine and authentic, not putting up a front or a persona. Sincerity is putting forth no other version of yourself than the true one. That doesn't mean being proud of your failings and your sin or being complacent. It means being humble and being honest. Lord Thompson and the airship team had a false persona, a false pretense, a facade of futuristic capability, of luxury and serenity, but beneath the fancy facade was dead cow's guts 
more barbaric than futuristic. More than that, it was poorly executed and very dangerous, but the failures were hidden and the danger was downplayed. This is exactly what happens to us when we are living in the wisdom of the world rather than the wisdom from above. We put a version of ourselves out there that is not really the true one. And when the facade cracks, we explain it away. And when we see danger coming, we ignore it. And we try to fool ourselves. And we try to fool others. Jesus, though, he had spiritual x-ray vision. And he could see through the silvery cloth to the moldy gas bags. And he wasn't impressed. He was disgusted. He used an equally intense image. He called hypocrites whitewashed tombs, pretty on the outside, but inside they're full of dead people. Because they pretended to be righteous in front of other people, but their hearts weren't in it, and they weren't as good in private as they let on in public. Now, who among us hasn't fallen into that temptation? To more or less degrees, we all wear masks at times. But the wisdom from above recognizes that though you may fool other people, you will never fool God. He knows your heart. And as you grow in internalizing that truth, it allows you to be real about who you really are. There's two types of insincerity that I think are worth addressing. Two ways of, uh, to borrow a phrase from James, making our religion worthless. That's a a phrase he uses, worthless religion, and we'll get to that. But there's two main forms of insincerity I want to address, two kinds of worthless religion. One is removing God from the center of religion, and the second is confining him to religion only. So we'll look at both of these in order. First, godless religion is is the freakish monster called hypocrisy. Jesus once told a parable containing the prayer of a Pharisee. The hypocrite's prayer was this, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. With this parable, Jesus is putting his finger on the pulse of hypocrisy. It takes something that's supposed to be all about God, and it makes it all about me. God is just a pretense for our pride and our pragmatism. Which then leads to all kinds of inconsistencies because without God at the center, the spirit of the law is removed from the the letter of the law and that results in wild abuses of God's word. And Jesus, who perfectly embodied the spirit of the law, was always bumping into these inconsistencies like whenever he healed people on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees, they feverishly confronted Jesus for that heinous sin of restoring a person to health. And they were attending to the letter of the law rather, and, and avoiding anything that seemed like work on the Sabbath, but they were missing the spirit of the law. So Jesus literally had to say to them these words, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath, which personally seems to me like it ought to go without saying. This is illuminating because it shows that many people who turn others off of religion by being too religious might actually not be religious enough. If they look down on others and become selectively zealous about certain points, and they, but they don't overflow with mercy and with love, they, then they have an agenda for their religion that is not centered on the heart of God. 
which is the hypocrisy Jesus spoke against. But I don't think it's all or nothing. I think there's, there could be areas of our life where we slip into using religion in a way that is not solely for the practice of communion with our God and the praise of his glory. And when we do that, we are on unstable ground. And growth in wisdom is recognizing that and repenting. And one way that we recognize it is when we start to look down on others or think that we deserve better than them. Like the prayer of the Pharisee, Jesus told. It's then that we must turn. I once wrote a poem retelling the parable of the prodigal son. And, of course, the second son, the older son, represented insincere religious folk. And that parable is some of Jesus' warmest words to people who had drifted into hypocrisy. So let me read you the part of the poem about the oldest son. He started in toward the house from far out on the grounds. Then he got close enough to hear all the sounds. Father didn't mention a party. What could this be? And then the thought struck him. Could this be for me? He saw a servant hurrying toward the house from the cows. He stopped him and asked, what's this all about? He smiled wide and said, I can't believe you've not heard. Your father killed the fattened calf for your brothers returned. Come in with me and join in on the celebration. But the son's heart sank and his face flushed with frustration. No, he said sharply, I will not go in there. Tell father I'll have no part in this affair. When his father heard this, he left all the fun and again, he went far off to retrieve a son. Please come into the party and enjoy what we've cooked. But the older son was still fuming and said to him, Look, my whole life I've served you. Never once disobeyed. That son in there, he left you. I'm the one who has stayed. He has devoured your property with prostitution. And when he finally comes back, you give full absolution? And on top of that, you throw this whole celebration for a man who's earned nothing except condemnation. I, however, have kept all your commands. I've worked hard and earned my place at your right hand. Yet to me, you've never even given one young little goat. No parties for me, but for that son, you don't. For that prodigal, you slaughtered our one fattened calf while I stand empty-handed. Where's the justice in that? The father wore an expression the son couldn't discern. Was it disappointment? Frustration? Or was it concern? The father said, Son, you are always with me. All I own is yours. Your hands are not empty. But of course we must celebrate. Your brother's revived. He was far off and dead, but now is alive. It is right and it's good for our joy to abound, for your brother was lost but now he is found. When we fall into hypocrisy, the Father comes out to us and he implores us to change our perspective. Our perspective on ourselves, our perspective on God, our perspective on others, our perspective on God that his blessings are not a zero-sum game and we can actually experience more blessing by rejoicing in the blessings of others. Our perspective on our our on our standing with on ourselves, that our standing with God is not based on our admirable and exemplary commitment, but on his fatherly love. 
and our perspective on others that their sins are not too great for God's grace and that they are no less valuable than we are. So we should pray for prodigals to become brothers rather than treat them as enemies or as scum. So the hypocrisy of removing God from the center of our religion is the first form of insincerity and worthless religion. The second form is not when we remove God from religion, it's when we confine God to religion. James tells us what makes our religion worthless in chapter 1. He says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. That statement is really powerful. He's saying that there are people who go to church and do enough churchy things to make them think that they are religious enough. But then, as they're living the rest of their life, they talk in ways that are not in line with the religion they claim to practice. So what good is their religion? The only thing it's doing, he says, is deceiving their heart. It's like a vaccination, just enough of a dead religion to inoculate them against the real thing. I call this confining God to religion because God is is meant to be the God of everything in all areas of life. Not just the times and places we deem as religious. His presence and our devotion to him is to reach every corner of our heart. He ought to affect as James said, how we use our mouths, how we talk about people, how we talk to people, nowadays how we type and how we text. If he's only affecting us during the times we deem as religious, but that doesn't spread to the rest of our lives, then whatever religion that we think we have is worthless, James says. Because God wants all of us. We can either deny him that or we can give him that. But there is no middle way And to try and live a middle way is simply insincerity. But the wisdom from above is sincere. Those who are wise, they give their whole selves over to Christ. Why? Well, let's ask the question we've been asking. What do we need to understand? That if we deeply understood it, it would lead us to giving our whole selves over to Christ. To hold nothing back. The first thing to understand is that he held nothing back for you. He gave his whole self. He became a man and lived for you. He gave that life in death for you, dying in your place to offer you forgiveness and welcome. He promises his whole self to you now to share in his very life, his eternal life, his joy, his peace, his possessions, his throne, his spirit. He holds nothing back. To, so give him your heart and not just your religion. And any religion you do have, make sure it's all about him. Give him your all and he will give you his all. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep nothing back and you will receive everything. Live for yourself and you will only have yourself and eventually even lose that. Live for Christ and you will have him and have him forever. And with him, a renewed self and everything else good thrown in. This is wisdom. This is the wisdom from above. Give your whole self to Christ and be wise. Let's pray. Our Holy Father, 
Give us your wisdom. Your wisdom. Let us become worldly fools to be wise with the wisdom from above. Humble us and make us whole. Completely yours. May we have a deep understanding of your grace that goes deeper than a surface acknowledgement, deep within our hearts where we, where we rejoice in your giving of yourself to us and it moves us to give ourselves to you with sincere faith, impartial love, and humble openness. Give us this beautiful, warm-hearted wisdom that will be salt and light in your world. We pray in Jesus' wise and wonderful name. Amen.